Hello and welcome to the Power of Sports podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller. And today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Coach Tara Vandeveer, the Setsuko Ishiyama Director of Women's Basketball at Stanford University and a recent NCAA champion for the third time. Coach Vandeveer has been coaching at Stanford since 1985 and coaching at the college level since 1978. Her overall coaching record since then is an astonishing 1,125 wins and 255 losses, meaning her teams have won more than 81% of all the games they've played. Coach Vandeveer has led her Stanford teams to 13 Final Fours and won her fourth National Coach of the Year Award in the 2020-2021 season. In December 2020, she passed the late great Pat Summit of the University of Tennessee as the winningest coach in NCAA Division I women's history. Vandeveer's most recent team tallied a 31-2 record and secured Stanford its third national title. It goes without saying, but Vandeveer was elected into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame in 2011. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome Coach Vandeveer to the Power of Sports podcast. Coach, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I really appreciate it. I know you must be really busy right now doing all kinds of media interviews and whatnot. Congratulations on your national championship. Thank you. Thank you. How are you, how are you doing? I mean, you must be on cloud nine still. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited for our team. Obviously, is a, I think it's a great accomplishment. Um, but I try not to ride that roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You know, just um, every year we just try to do the best we can. And this year we ended up on top. It could have gone a lot of different ways. You know, I mean, there were three games at the end that we could have lost any one of those games. So, mm-hmm. I'm you know, I'm excited for our team. and. Um, I, I think we can actually play a lot better. I think we can get better. So, you know, we've got a lot of young players and hopefully they're going to be committed to getting better. That's right. You do have a young team this year. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about them. And as I was preparing questions for today, I was thinking about how, you know, if we weren't living in a pandemic, maybe you'd be celebrating somewhere on a beach or something yeah. like that. But what are you doing to celebrate? Sounds like you're keeping on an even keel. Well, you know, I think once we got back, we did have a, a nice parade for our team. It was really fun. Um, but quite honestly, um, for me, I've been kind of keeping the pedal to the metal. I mean, just mm-hmm. whether it's interviews, whether it's Zooms, I've got Pac-12 meetings, Stanford meetings, recruiting um, mm-hmm. or recruiting. I've heard um, about this. Yes. So it's, you know, it's um, really constant. I plan to just try to work through May and then. I'll get a break in June and then we'll start up in the summer again. I see. Yeah. I heard about this, that with college basketball coaches, the recruiting is actually right after the season ends and then you have a break later. Is that right? Right. Well, everybody kind of does it their way. And I like to work now and, you know, just tie up a lot of loose ends. We've got meetings with our players. We've got a schedule, you know, workouts. We're going to start in May. So uh, they're just announcing right now the um, Chauvin. Uh, they've re- they've reached a verdict, but they haven't announced it yet. Yes. So they must have some you know protocol that they have to go through and talking with um, whatever the jury or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I hope that this is the end of it. You know, it's been awful. Oh, it really has. It really has. Oh. It's. And I'm not surprised to hear you say that because, of course, you've been at the forefront of of so much important change and a different you know area of. of mm-hmm. um, you know, sexism. Um, but I think on the racism front as well, I think you're absolutely right. So, you know, your team obviously was the number one overall seed in the tournament this year. And, you know, the regular season play that mm-hmm. you led the team to obviously impressed the selection committee. And I think that the, you know, your play in the tournament 
showed that you deserved that number one seed with some really gritty wins. And I have to say, I was on the edge of my seat for some of this. I'm sure all fans of, of your team were, but what stood out this year with this group of players? You know, why do you think it clicked to the point where, you know, they were able to, to win it all? Well, you know, Aaron, we've had uh, a number of great teams, which you've seen. And I know. You know whether it's, you know, with NECA and Shane Ogomake, Jane Appel, Candace Wiggins, I mean, great players and great teams that have gone deep into the tournament. And sometimes you just need to get the ball bouncing your way on certain mm-hmm. plays. And that happened in this particular tournament. Going into the tournament, we might have been the number one seed, but it wasn't like we were here and other people were down there. I mean, right. there was a lot of, um, you know, it could have been Connecticut. It could have been Baylor. It could have been Louisville. I mean, there are so many teams. It could have been North Carolina State, you know, all, all these different teams, South Carolina. Everyone thought they were the number one seed. Maryland, this year was the year of kind of great parity at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, some Cinderella teams like in Arizona mm-hmm. making it all the way to the championship game. Um, so, you know, we battled COVID all year long. We had the toughest route to the, uh, the, the championship, and it was really exciting to see our team pull it off. It really was. I'm glad that you brought that up because I had read about this. And of course, they've mentioned it many times on the broadcast. But what an incredible, you know, many month period that you had here traveling all over the place just to be able to practice and play with your right. team due to all the you know health restrictions in Santa Clara County. So I think it was you played six games at Maples Pavilion. Total of six. Correct. So how did you keep the team motivated through this stretch? Well, you know, um, we try to take it kind of one week at a time in November. You know, we, uh, in the very beginning of actually, actually in October, we were not allowed in our gym. So we were practicing on the tennis courts at Maples, you know, at Stanford with Mm -hmm. the the portable hoops were up there, but there's no floor there. I mean, you know, you can't be on there long. You're letting, you'll get stress fractures and everything else. You know, mm-hmm. but we, we were shooting around on the tennis court. Then we were able to, we were not cleared for our own gym. We went into Woodside Priory, a high school gym. It's a small high school gym. It was like so loud. And then we went to Menlo College, college gym for two days. So the beginning of our practice was not even in our own gym. So when we got in our own gym, we're, we're like really thankful to be in our own gym. Sure. But no locker rooms, no weight room, nothing. You just came in, you had your chairs separated. Uh, you know, we had names on the chairs. We learned a lot, actually, you know, mm-hmm. a lot about, you know, just um, how we had to do things. You know, we were always separate. We never had a close circle. We were always divided by six feet. We just did what we had to do. And when we hit November and we were practicing and we played one game here, our second game was canceled because they had a COVID issue mm-hmm. uh, on the day that Santa Clara closed down, which is a Sunday after Thanksgiving. So we had to find a place to go. And so we went to Las Vegas for a week and we could play a game there. And Washington came to us and played there, which was great. Washington state had COVID issues. So instead of them coming to us, we went up and played there twice. Mm-hmm. So we just, we did what we had to do, but we played on the road. We played in the Santa Cruz Warriors facility over in Santa Cruz. And, you know, we, we just did what we had to do. And we actually mm-hmm. played the most games of any team in our league. We missed one because Oregon State did not come down to us. But, um, you know, otherwise we played everybody else and uh, we just we made it happen. It's remarkable. I mean, it really is. The thing that I kept wondering as I've been thinking about it is being on the road for that long. 
you know, eating together, sleeping in hotels, practicing these gyms, which I understand at least one of them didn't even have lights at one point. Yeah, correct. Um, that was the high school gym. And, and we were thankful to practice in their gym. But one day they had a big storm. The lights went out. The floor was slippery. And we're just like, hey, we've got to practice anyway. Wow, that's dedication. And I mean, it must have been in a, in a strange way, a, a form of bonding for your players. I think it was. And, you know, the, the question was kind of how do you stay motivated? We just we took it in small pieces. Mm-hmm. Because if, if I've said in the beginning, we're going to be on the road for this long, I think they all would have quit. And I might have quit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we just said, all right, for, we're going to go Las Vegas for a week. OK, we can do that. All right. Northern California for a week. We can do that. Southern California for a week. We can do that. The hardest part was at Christmas when we didn't have, um, you know, players couldn't go home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard. But we got through that and then we went to Arizona for a week, you know, and then it just became this bouncing around from place to place for a week. Amazing. And that bonding that was done and this bouncing around that you were required to do if you wanted to continue the, the training right. and, and play the season. Do you think that actually in a strange way sort of helped the players deal with the pressure of the NCAA tournament? You know, in some ways, I think it did, because when we got to San Antonio, all the other schools were like, oh, we got to do all this testing. We've been doing that all along. Oh, right. we got to wear these monitors. We've been doing that all along. Oh, we got to be in our hotel and get take off food. We've been doing that. You know, we were used to that. Mm-hmm. We were used to a very strict, strict protocol. You know, riding the bus in a certain seat. Uh, your airplane was a certain seat. We were used to that. So we just went. And when we went down there, three weeks did not feel like very long when you'd been on the road for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. We were like, oh, this is no problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. And I know that there was at least one point at which you yourself were thinking this, this is too much. We got there was, there was. Uh, I think in the middle of January, you know, it was maybe a rainy night and, a, you know, it was cold, you know, just like, again, the gym and, you know, you're staying in a hotel and the food's cold or it's not the right order. And you're just mm-hmm. like, but I have to tell you, Aaron, the team was fantastic. Not a single player complained. People kept a very positive attitude. They really love each other. That it's a great sisterhood. And that's why it worked is because, you know, they enjoyed being with each other, you know, and they yeah. knew the alternative was they had been at home by themselves, you know, for basically, you know, at least six months. And they knew the alternative was go home and be by yourself. So yeah. it was much more fun being a traveling band, being on the bus, being with people. Another really hard time was when um, we had three players before our, our big Oregon home game home. Right. In quotes. quotes. But before that game, we had three players that were knocked out with contact tracing. They didn't, Mm -hmm. they weren't testing positive, but we never had, we didn't have a player during the season test positive. So that was really, I think an awesome accomplishment by our players. Absolutely. We did have three staff, but we had, so we had to work without our staff. So I wanted to talk about the season because obviously you won the national championship and it, it deserves a lot of conversation. But I also really, you know, wanted to kind of go back to the the beginning of of all of this really miraculous journey that you've been on, Coach. Because you know, this being your third national title, and as you say, you've had plenty of other teams that were talented enough and skilled enough yep. to win it too. But it seems to me that you know now must be an interesting moment of reflection for you, whether you want to celebrate or not. It must right. be you know that a little bit of a looking back moment. In some sense, I kind of no? look back. I think a little bit, Arian. I, I think about, well, what did I learn? What, you know, what worked for us? One of the things that was kind of interesting is, you know, because you were wearing masks all the time, people didn't get sick. 
Mm. We didn't have people out with the usual colds or flu or something like that. We were amazingly healthy. We had Mm -hmm. 12 players healthy basically the whole year. No one has surgery at the end of the season. And I cannot remember a year when that has happened. So somehow the bubble, the isolation, the maybe, you know, the very, very uh, maybe meticulously planned because you only have a certain amount of time. People have Zoom classes. You know, I mean, we were we were training for games so much. Um, I I think in some ways we you know, what we didn't do was we we weren't doing these like really, um, you know, aggressive contact practices mm-hmm. because we're you know, we didn't want someone to get hurt. And then if you go in the hospital, there's another two week quarantine, all this stuff, you know. So we really worked hard as a staff to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. And that that was a big thing that I need to learn from. How interesting. And so now that the season is over and you're you have a chance to look back, I, I wonder, can I ask a few questions about sure. you know basketball in your life growing up that, as you know, with this podcast, I think I sent you a couple of episodes and I don't know if you've had a chance to listen, but the whole idea here is to talk about, you know, athletes and coaches and people involved in sports in some capacity and how sports have been powerful in their lives. And I know, you know, your story begins with um, some really difficult moments in sports where you want to play as a young girl and you're not able to. And so I wonder if you could just take the listeners back to that moment a little bit and, and sort of set the stage, um, you know, what it was like for you growing up. Well, you know, when you're a little kid, we had gym class. I love gym class and everybody loved gym class and we played basketball and we did a three player weave, which was, you know, I'm like, wow. So I think from the first day that I ever touched a basketball and we did this drill in gym class, I mean, I can remember that like it was yesterday and I can picture the court you know, and I loved it. But then starting in like the fourth grade, fifth grade, they had games for boys. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, I was better than them. Mm-hmm. Why am I not able to play? Why am I sitting on the side? And that was before girls, you know, really challenged the status quo of sports are for boys, not for girls. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd always play basketball with the boys, you know, when I went home from school, um, you know, there's, I didn't have a hoop on my driveway because it was the gravel, but, you know, next door neighbors did, or there was a nice hoop that, you know, I, I, I'd go either by myself and to play with the boys. I figured out the best way to get in the games was to have the best ball. If they want to use my ball, then I get to play. And there were some girls that played as I was younger, but then as we got older, fewer and fewer girls played. And, you know, my dad was a, he was getting his PhD. And so I went to a campus school where it was seven through 12. Mm-hmm. So the seventh grade boys had a team, the eighth grade boys had a team, the ninth grade boys had a team, the freshman team, JV team and varsity team. Well, my dad was, we always went early. So I'd watch the boys practice in the morning, be doing some homework or something. And then my dad would be staying late. And I'd go up to the college where, you know, then I would go in the gym and I'd watch the, the boys. Um, they had, a, you know, the, the college team practice. So I grew up watching basketball, not playing it as much mm-hmm. as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I tell this story, you know, obviously back in the day, there were no scholarships. Uh, there were no full-time jobs for coaches. There were nothing on television, no NCAA tournaments, no basketball camps. And I had a love-hate relationship with basketball. I loved it, but it, it was painful. Yeah. So, you know, when I, I just ended up playing a little bit in college, I gr- transferred and went to Indiana University where we had a, like a seven-game regular schedule. And I, one year I sprained my ankle. I missed half the season. You know, the, the, the boys practiced from two in the afternoon until seven. You know, talk about 
just taking the middle of the watermelon, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, they just, you know, and if they went late, so then we would practice after that, you know, they'd go home for training table. We'd practice like at seven to nine, we'd go home to hamburger helper. It was very, very challenging. Um, but you know, as a, uh, I just, I, I love the game. I loved watching the game. Um, you know, I watched, uh, Indiana's Bobby Knight's practice, like three years, almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I felt like I learned a lot about basketball just by watching and I just love the, uh, the strategy of it. So, you know, I, I mean, I just watch a lot and learn a lot and I'm intrigued by it. Yes. And, and that, that, that word strategy pops into my head because even just knowing at a young age that if you brought the ball, you'd be able to play that, that alone yeah. is a really brilliant strategic move. I think bringing all that back to the, the present day, you know, there, there are still inequities and we saw that this year with the, the facilities mm-hmm. at the NCAA yeah. tournament. And so I wonder, you know, what you make of, of that now. You know, um, well, when we went down to the tournament, I mean, things might have flown if there wasn't the communication between the men's and women's players or the men's and women's coaches. So, you know, the, the men were in Indianapolis, the women were in San Antonio, you know, they'd worked really hard to put this tournament together and we were thankful to be in the tournament. Sure. But what happened was the curtain got pulled back. Mm -hmm. And when they showed pictures of, you know, like the little swag bags, eh, I'm not, I'm not bent out of shape about the little swag bags, but that was just the beginning. The weight rooms were totally different. They had an outside area that they had not thought about women needing, you know, just wanting to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the food was totally different. I mean, you saw pictures of their filet mignon and lobster and, you know, and then the women, it's like mystery meat and mac and cheese. I mean, it was so different, you know, um, and really through this, when I spoke with our team, I just said, you guys look at, we're here to win the tournament. Let's not get caught in the weeds. Mm-hmm. And then what did me in was the testing. They did antigen testing for the women, which, and PCR testing for the men. And, you know, having gone through the whole protocol all year long with three PCR tests a week, antigen testing every day, knowing that Santa Clara County does not even accept antigen testing. That's right. That's right. You know, the PCR testing is the gold standard. That just sent me over the edge. Mm-hmm. So from then on, I'm like, okay, you know, if you don't value our health as much, that to me is a problem. Absolutely. So, you know, I, okay. The weight room, that's not good. The branding on the courts, that's not good. Uh, the food, that's not good. But the, uh, again, you know, the, the curtain got pulled back and the NCAA really had an opportunity to run a first class tournament for both men and women to show great equity maybe things don't have to be exactly the same in every single thing mm-hmm. in the same way that our, our rules are different. You know, we play the quarter system, which we like better than the half system that the mm-hmm. men play. We like to be able to advance the ball. The men don't do that. You know, so there are certain things about the women's rules that we like better. So we don't have to have the, everything doesn't have to be exactly the same, mm-hmm. but I think that there are things that there is so much disparity that it just put people over the edge. Yes. And as a kind of a follow-up to that, one thing I read recently is, you know, in the wake of, as you say, the curtain being pulled back, there's been some who've said, well, 
there was a system that was more equitable uh, for women playing uh, sports in college before the NCAA took over these tournaments. And that was, of course, the AIAW. And Mm -hmm. um, you were playing back in those days, I believe. And so I'm curious, you know, what you make of that, that kind of statement. Do you think that the NCAA needs to tweak things and and reform things, or do you think there should be, you know, a different system that's or a different managerial governance system? I guess you might say. Well, I think Aaron, there's, you know, as I view the history, which I lived, yeah. um, you know, I coached, I played in the AIW system and coached in the AIW system, which, you know, was just get, getting women's athletics going. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's. The NCAA basically said, I believe it was 1981, you know, we're going to have an NCAA tournament and we're going to take over women's athletics. Okay, great. Because they had more resources. That's right. And then instead of growing the women's game, I think they did things purposely to hold the game back Mm -hmm. by not having vision for what women's basketball could be. They just thought maybe, oh, this is women's basketball. Women's basketball, women's volleyball, women's gymnastics, women's softball. I mean, these team sports are big and they're drawing really, really well. And the lack of vision at the NCAA is what is, I think, most bothersome. And the other thing is Mm -hmm. when you have, you know, so universities have said we're going to have great women's teams and we're going to support women's teams. Conferences have said we're going to have great women's programs, the Pac-12 network supporting. We're on more than any other uh, league in terms Mm -hmm. of on television. You know, and other conferences have said the same things. We're going to have tournaments for men and women, and we're going to run the women's tournament the same as a men's tournament. So then when you get to the NCAA level and you see such disparity and you're used to things being maybe not equal, but equitable or working to be equitable, Mm -hmm. you know, like we did not at Stanford they did not say, women, you're going to have antigen testing and men are going to have PCR testing. They did not say, men, you're going to charter. Women, you're going to go commercial. Things were equitable for our teams. You know, whether it's a per diem, whether it's scholarships, things like that. Now, they're not the exact same, but they're very, they're very equitable. Now, the challenge is that the NCAA, you know, the men's, men's basketball tournament is the moneymaker for the whole NCAA. Right. That is the engine of the train. That's right. I'm not saying that the men's basketball tournament can't be what it is, but I'm just saying you have enough money, you have enough resources to grow women's basketball to that level too. Men have been have had tournaments since 1939. The women have been, you know, basically 40 years later in 1981. Mm-hmm. So, so men have a 40 year head start. So use that knowledge that you've been working on for 40 years and apply it to women's basketball, not doing things to hold women's basketball back. Yes. I very well. And other you. women's sports, not just women's basketball. Of course, of course. And I think the timing was right years ago, but it's definitely still right now for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, the NCAA the has hired a law firm and we'll see where that goes. Are you optimistic? You know, I, I'm, I want to be optimistic, but what makes me pessimistic is the fact that the head of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, who I've spoken to, I think he's, you know, I mean, I know he, he wants to do a good job, but the person below him that runs men's and women's basketball is named Dan Gavitt and below him is the women. So you've got to elevate the women to be on this level. They both report to the top person and the top person has gotten a vote of confidence 
from their board of uh, the NCAA board. There are a lot of college presidents. I don't know how many, but there are some at least who think he's doing a great job when we just saw a big old fat mess. (laughs) Right. Right. Absolutely. A vote of confidence to me is discouraging. Yes. Yes. Let me switch gears a little bit, coach. I want to talk about what I think, you know, is something, you know, another important hallmark of your coaching, and that's the education that you you provide your players. It's not just about, you know, teaching them the skills they need to be successful on the court, but you always seem to me to to see the promise in a player before sometimes the player themselves does. And, uh, you know, I think your record proves it, but you always seem to bring out the best in the players that you coach, regardless of their talent level. And so this really showed to me this year because your team was so versatile and so many different players contributed to your team's success. And so I was wondering if there are any educational or coaching philosophies or, you know, mentors, that is, from which you draw inspiration or from whom you draw inspiration? Well, I I guess I would start with mentors being my parents. They're both Mm -hmm. teachers and uh, I've been very fortunate. Again, I've watched a lot of basketball. I've watched the best basketball coaches in the world in the history of the game, whether it's uh, Pete Newell might be top on that list, you know, coach Bobby Knight, you know, people can say what they want, but uh, you know, he's had a great, great program. And I was very fortunate to be able to watch. And I learned from his coach, Fred Taylor at Ohio state, every place I've been, I've been a sponge. I really, really, I feel like I'm a life learner and I want to learn as much as I can about the game, whether it's our game here or even internationally, we've played internationally and I would go watch other coaches run practices. Um, You know, I try to watch a lot of, whether it's professional basketball, college basketball, high school basketball. I mean, I just, I love ideas about the game of basketball and figuring out how to fit them into what my kind of my vision of basketball. Mm -hmm. I think the opportunity to be a teacher on the court and, and also that basketball is, a little bit of a microcosm of life, you know, in terms of the challenges you have to maybe overcome and the adversity that you have. And, and you want people to, and a lot, you know, I'll, I'll have players come back 10 years out, 20 years out, 30 years out, and just say, you know, in my college experience, basketball is the thing that has helped me the most in my career. So there are, I think there are life lessons to be learned on the basketball court, playing on a team, uh, being, asked to be unselfish, um, you know, being asked to perform at a certain time and a certain level, the disappointments that go with it, um, the excitement that goes with it, the camaraderie, the, all the emotions that are part of being on that team and, and doing what we do. And I really like the, the music analogies that, that you use. I know you're a piano player. My sister's a piano teacher and, and I, I dabble a little bit in music myself, but, uh, but I, I just love the analogy you use about, you know, each player or musician, as it were, performing her own solo, but that, you know, the solos might be different each night. And so, I, right. you know, of course, and of course you get, you get world-class players and, and um, student athletes to Stanford. So I wonder how you managed to persuade each player to perform her role, you know, well, this year, but every year it must be different. You know, some, some years better than others. I'll be, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, but um, I think that, we have a culture of former players who will talk a lot of uh, what we did this past year was on zoom with, you know, players like Neko Gumake or Cheneo Gumake or Roz or Susan Borchard. 
And we brought in someone like Katie Ledecky or Simone Manuel also to, you know, talk to them about this. This is what great teams do. This is how great players train and to help them with understanding kind of what it takes and, and really um, kind of talking about the culture. Everyone doesn't fit in the Stanford culture. Stanford is not for everyone. Um, and it is a calm. Obviously, the first thing is you have to be really serious about your academics. Um, and secondly, you cannot be afraid of competition. You're going to compete. Uh, our team is extremely competitive. Um, and at the same time, when, you know, when, when things are going your way or they're not going your way, we need you to be the same person, mm-hmm. you know? So if you, we have players on our team that, you know, we've had, gosh, I'm trying to think of, so we have our starting lineup and we've probably had three or four other players start in certain games you know, or even past seasons. And it's like, Hey, I'm sorry, but this is where we're at right now. You've got to come off the bench and do your job. And, you know, it's just, I also think that I really try to focus on the fact that it's a team game. It's a team game. It was invented as a team game. It is a team game and always will be a team game. So yes, there are going to be some outstanding individuals and things, you know, people are going to contribute certain things, but we need everyone to be successful. It's, you know, who, uh, who's going through in practice and we're doing the scouting report, you know, who's pushing the like Keanu Williams might be an all American, but who's guarding her every day and pushing her every day. Absolutely. Um, and, and we had, um, I think we had an, an incredible sisterhood, really the, the, the team was incredibly close and I don't know that we'll ever, I don't know that we can ever duplicate that, you know, mm. I mean, it was incredibly special. Mm. So, you know, I mean, going forward, you, you want to have, players that are competitive, but I mean, they were there for each other, whether they started, whether they played. And we had great examples of that. And kind of a related question is, you know, when you have a talented incoming freshman, what's the most important thing that you think you can teach them as far as, you know, accepting the role? I don't know that they learned from me as much as they learned from their teammates. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that we have a really good foundation for them to come in and that we know the message they're getting every day from their teammates, you know, whether it's, you know, following protocol, you know, for COVID, that was really important. Sure. Um, you know, just making sure that the young players understand that what college basketball is all about. I like to say people get it. Does this team get it? And if they mm-hmm. get it, then I think that's really good. Okay. Well, let me take you back a little bit and ask you to reflect on, on a quote that I found this was from a review that was published by Kirkus about the book that you wrote with, with Joan Ryan called Shooting mm-hmm. from the Outside. And this is a quote from the review. It says, quote, Vandeveer displays a side here, warm, determined, unabashedly flawed, and unselfconsciously upbeat that should surprise those who have not followed her career since the beginning. Vandeveer relives the inequities that defined her playing career in the days prior to and just following the inception of Title IX the grudging acceptance of the letter rather than the spirit of that law and the none too subtle gender discrimination that still taints most sports. Rather than catalog these setbacks and inequities, Vanderveer instead explains how her own doggedness and will to succeed helped her rise, close quote. So what do you think about this review now looking back on it? You know, Aaron, um, I think, you know, maybe whether it's helped me or hurt me, I'm not afraid to be myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and who I am as 
a woman, as a coach, uh, as a teacher, you know, as a, a mentor. And I think sometimes, you know, like I don't sugarcoat stuff a lot, you know, with our team, but uh, I, our team, you know, they hear direct coaching. Uh, but I, I think that um, they, they benefit from a positive environment, you know, and you've watched practices, mm-hmm. um, you've seen, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, during the games, you know, you, you can get wound up, you can get excited, you know, you can be yelling and screaming for the most part. Um, I, I really look at it like just trying to take our team somewhere they can't go by themselves, you know, just like my young player is never going to be a great player because they don't understand what it takes. And my staff and I, I feel like we're trying, we work really hard to mentor young women to be the best players they can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, I want to say that those practices are really inspirational and I am still eminently grateful for the opportunity to watch them. And uh, you mentioned yourself and that leads me to my next question, which is about, I know that you love helping other coaches, particularly young female coaches develop their ability to be coaches, which is challenging and, and has been ever since title nine. And so I wonder, you know, where that fits into the bigger picture of your, your life's work. And, you know, if you could share a little bit about how you came to do that kind of work. And, you know, I like to think of you being a coach of coaches, but. Well, I probably started with my sister mm-hmm. as uh, my youngest sister is a college coach. And That's right. when she came out of college, you know, she majored in political science. She thought she was going to go to law school, but she decided she wanted to go into coaching. So I said, well, the mo- you know, coaching is like a vocation, you know, in some respects, you know, you go back to training with, you know, if you want to be a chef, go work in the best kitchen you can. And that's true. I think of coaching is go work on the best court that you can with the best coach. So I told my sister, you know, at the time that she came out, I said, well, you have three choices. You can come with me at Ohio state, but you already know I'll share anything I know. So that's not a really good option because, you know, you have all that information already, mm-hmm. or you can go to Texas or you can go to Tennessee and learn from Jody Conrad or Pat Summit. And, and I said, I'll pay for your graduate school. I said, but Part of the agreement is that you are the first person in the basketball office and the last person to leave every single day. Mm-hmm. So she agreed to that and she enrolled in graduate school. And after the first week she was at Tennessee, she said, well, you don't have to pay anymore. I got a full graduate assistantship. And I said, oh, how did that happen? She goes, because I was the first person in there every day, oh. the last person to leave. So, you know, within one week, she let him know she was serious. And I'm like, that got me off the hook, which I was glad. <laughs> and in her first year as a, as a graduate assistant and Tennessee had never won a national championship before they won a national championship the first year she was there. So wow, what a story. Yeah. So it was pretty fun. So did that incident kind of make you realize that it was kind of a calling for you? Well, to help I, I think that, um, I think that through, you know, our basketball camps and a lot of women would come and work our camps. We would do a coaching session. You know, I could watch them work. I could give them feedback on how they were teaching things, how they were doing. I would keep in touch with them. And so through our basketball camps, that kind of started. And then um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but, you know, with the Women's Sports Foundation, there's a legacy fund. Yes, I am. Because we do the, uh, we have interns with our program. And for the last 20 years, we've had at least one or two interns. So there's probably, you know, over 50 young women that we've put out there to either one, one's, one's a head coach that went to the NCAA this year at Central mm-hmm. Michigan, Heather Osterley, 
but other coaches are either assistant coaches, they're, they're DOBs, they're video coordinators. We're trying to flood the pipeline with uh, young women. Um, and the Women's Sports Foundation is doing this in all sports, not just basketball. And just so the listeners know, this has your name on it, this fund, which I think is fantastic because of the legacy you've had helping so many coaches. I know you know that I know the story of, of why it's so important, but I wonder if you could tell the listeners about why this work is so important, you know, after what, when Title IX brought in more money into the women's Well, I think, you know, as you know, I mean, Title IX did bring a legitimacy to coaching women. Mm-hmm. And before Title IX, any, any team, like my Indiana team, was a graduate student from Indiana or was a PE teacher who was 90% were women or even more, probably 100% were women coaches. Uh, women coaches and physical education teachers. And, and this was, uh, this was great and they did a great job, but it, when money came in and the athletic department shifted from two, uh, you know, men's athletic department, women's athletic department, when they became one, mm-hmm. basically the men kind of took over and, and athletic directors, you know, if they wanted to hire a coach, the people they knew were other men. So right. a lot of times, and the experienced players were other men. And so, automatically half the jobs went, you know, pretty much went to men right away. That's right. Um, maybe, you know, not right away, but over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so getting those jobs back and I don't have an issue with men coaching women. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an issue with women coaching men, right? but no one allows women to coach men. Right. So you know, at a university, it seems so, inconceivable that, you know, you'd have a professor in chemistry that's a woman Mm -hmm. or math or English or French or whatever teaching men, but you can't do it on the basketball court. You know, so when half the jobs automatically do not go to women, that's where I think, all right, well, the other half then need to be going to women. Absolutely. I I completely agree. And I, and I think that it goes without saying that you would be an amazing coach of anybody you coached, regardless of gender. But I think so many other coaches in women's basketball would easily make the transition. But what do you think it is that clouds people's thinking or, or creates this bias? Well, I mean, it's, it's so deep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so deep. I mean, in the same way that we've been fighting this COVID virus, you know, we're fighting the, the racism virus. Why is racism so uh, ingrained in our culture and sexism, the isms, ageism, yep. Yep. you know, um, I think they've just been, you know, ingrained in our, in our culture and our society and our community. And we have a long way to go in the same way that we have never elected a woman as a president of our country. You know, our, our team is funny They they do like little riddles, you know, with each other when we're eating dinner or, you know, we're hanging out and the riddle, one of them was just about how they, you know, was a riddle. And the answer was that, you know, the, the doctor was a woman. Well, you know, now maybe they can see this, but years ago, we, we just are overcoming so much sexism, so much racism, so many isms. And mm-hmm. we're in that battle. And we've already talked about it with the disparity. Why would the NCAA that is supported by universities that have more than half the students are women? That's why right. would they think they can serve steak to the boys and hot dogs to the girls? Because they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's the world we live in. Mm-hmm. But I think your analogy is a really important one, too, that there are professors in, in all these different departments who are women and they are instructing uh, male students. Why it should it be any different at the college sports level? I, I think that's an absolute uh, great well, point. I will tell you that at Stanford, 
you know, I can remember at Stanford, it might've happened sooner, but I've had numerous great male players come up to me and say, I wish I played on your team. I bet. You know, and, you know, just congratulations. And they've, they've, uh, I've worked individually with guys in the gym, you know, they'll be in the gym and I'll say, Hey, you know, do you want any tips on your free throw? And they're always very receptive. So I don't think it's the young men necessarily that have the ism, but I think it's maybe the athletic directors. They can't, again, they, there's no vision. There's no vision for what, you know, what things could be. And in fact, I think women would be a great addition to men's staff and ultimately obviously a great head coaches. But so there are so many young men that are raised in single families by single parents that are women. And I, I think that, you know, men and women bring different things to uh, the party. And it would be great to, to have uh, more balance in the athletic world, in men's athletics. I think what would be really, and, and I think men can add a lot to women's athletics, Absolutely. You know, but, but until that door is open for women to work in men's, then, you know, I just feel like, okay, you know, we've, we've got to give these opportunities to women right now. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. I read, Recently, that uh, Coach Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors um, said something about you that I thought was pretty interesting. And I wonder if I can ask you to think about it and reflect on it. But he said, quote, she's understated, but she's clearly in charge. When you're in the room with her, you feel like, okay, she's the boss, but she doesn't need to yell and scream. It's more just poise and knowledge. And players feel that there's just this army of players who she recruits to come through there. And then she coaches them up and just year after year, they win. It's not easy to do that as a coach. Your voice can get old. So I wonder what you make of that comment. I mean, I don't know. I appreciate the compliments from Steve. You know, I think he's a great coach. I think that he lives in a different world, you know, in the professional world. They could have pro players on their team for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. The players leave, you know, so I can tell the same stories, you know, five years from now, you know what I'm saying? I see. I mean, because... It's, they're different. They're different. There's a different set. I think sometimes it is challenging to, you know, maybe just individually coaches struggle with, you know, staying motivated or, you know, just the, the daily battles that you're in, whether it's recruiting battles or dealing with parents or administrators and things like that. But, but I'm in a, I'm in a really good place. And I, I don't feel this tremendous amount of like pressure that I think a lot of coaches feel. Mm-hmm. You know, about, you know, you're, you're going to keep your job or that you have somehow have to be someone you're not. And mm-hmm. I, I can be myself and be, be excited. I'm not going to say I haven't had issues with whether it's players or parents or, you know, that just comes with the territory. Sure. But, um, you know, I think for the most part, it's a great opportunity for me and I, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. That's a nice segue to the next question, which is about, you know, now that this season is over, you know, what are your coaching goals now going forward? What are you uh, planning to do during this, well, this time between now and next season? I just do what I always do. You know, I got on the plane on the way back from the Final Four, and I always watch the video of the last game. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's not happy. In fact, 29 times in a row it wasn't. But, you know, this time it was fun to watch. But I'm also I'm looking for things. I thought we could have played a lot better. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking for things like, well, what do we and – I, and I take notes, you know, right after the season to remember – you know, you've got to cut to the chase early, you know, not do a lot of fluff things, but you've got to say, all right, so this is where you need to be to win a national championship. These are things that you need to be doing well. 
and try to identify those things early and get on those things right away. You know, like for our team, you know, going forward, we've got to do a better job of playing against pressure when people get up on us, you know, put the ball on the floor, attacking the basket better. We turned the ball over too much in our last couple of games, you know, taking care of the basketball. Uh, we need to do a better job defensively, switching and being more aggressive without fouling. Uh, we send people to the free throw line too much. So just trying to really identify things like we had a great three-point shooting team. Well, then if people are out on us and we've extended them, then we've got to be able to go inside and have a, a go-to player on the block. So trying to really understand, and I take notes and I've got yellow legal pads is full of things, you know, just trying to figure out kind of where we're at and what, you know, what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. That's the strategy again, isn't it? I, I like to put the puzzle together. You know, I mean, we had our banquet and, you know, I talked to, you know, it was just great having all our players on. And, you know, I told him, I just said, you know, for the next 50 weeks, cause we're two weeks away, but for the next 50 weeks, we're national champions mm-hmm. and we're going to enjoy that. But if we want to do it again, you know, if it's fun and you like it, let's do it mm-hmm. again. So, you know, we're going to try to win another one Absolutely. and it will be putting the puzzle t- together differently. You've got to think that teams that didn't win, whether it was South Carolina, they have a great young team or Connecticut, they have a great young team, you know, or it could be another sleeper like Arizona, you know, that they will get after it. And, you know, I also think that one of the things that crossed my mind, you know, here last year, one of the best teams ever to play in our conference was Oregon mm-hmm. with Sabrina and you know, and sure. their season was cut short. So don't always be focusing on the end. Enjoy the journey. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. And 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 when your teams um, are successful at the end, it's just one game. It just happens to be the last game that you win. Uh, but otherwise, the, the seasons are always a success, it seems like, under you, Coach. And, Thank you, Aaron. Uh, of course, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And so I think, you know, my favorite thing about your your coaching style, if you will, is is you have this kind of determined positivity, and and I think your your official bio on the Stanford website mentions it, as well as you know your energetic approach to coaching. But with that in mind, and you know, given your the season that's just wrapped up, but looking back on your coaching so far, I wonder if you can you know, just kind of try to sum up what the power of sports is to you. I mean, sports yes. really are my life, mm-hmm. um, and whether it's competition, you know, um, one of the things, you know, like I like, I like to play bridge and, you know, so every hand is different. It's every team is different. And you're always trying to make the most of that hand. And that's what I try to do, you know, as a coach with our team, but it's really fun when you have a great hand and you can play it really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and this year we had, I think we had a very, very good team and, but we played it well mm-hmm. and, you know, we won a national championship, but sports are, you know, first of all, I mean, I love to participate in all sports. I mean, I grew up playing everything and I still try to do as much as I can, as much as my, you know, 60 year old body allows me to, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I want to keep basketball fun, you know, and that's the thing is that like, as basketball has always been something that I've loved to play and it was painful because I couldn't play. Mm-hmm. So I want players on our team to look forward to coming to practice. I want them to enjoy playing in the games. I want to be a coach for our players that I would like to play for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone that I don't pretend to know everything. I don't pretend to be perfect. You know, I, I want, I want players to really enjoy their experience at Stanford and I love playing and, and fans to come and watch and say, wow, you know, that team that plays fundamental basketball, they play team basketball, they're inspired. They're a fun team to watch. There's no question about that coach. I, I love watching your teams play. 
And uh, it's basketball as it should be when I watch your teams play. And, and thank you, Aaron. Uh, of course. And I just want to thank you again for taking part in this this show. I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. I enjoy seeing you. Usually I just yes. email. So yes, you know. it's very nice to see you. I had this beard last time I saw no, you. No, it's just the way I'm measuring time during COVID. Well, stay well, well Aaron. You too, Coach. Thank All you right. so Hope much. Hope you yeah. game next year. I will. I, I, I definitely will. No question. Great. Have All a right. very nice rest of your day. Thank you, Coach. All right. Take care, Aaron. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that will wrap up our show this time. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know I did. But it was a really surreal experience to be interviewing the human rights pioneer at almost exactly the same time that the verdict in the Derek Chauvin-George Floyd murder case came down. As Coach Vandiver said, there are too many isms out there clouding our judgment and making us do things we regret. And so I certainly hope that we've turned a page in this country's dark history. My sincere thanks to Coach Tara Vanderveer for making it a great hour of my life. My sincere thanks as well to Coach Vanderveer's longtime associate head coach, Amy Tucker, for setting our call up. And my sincere thanks to you for listening. I never forget that my listeners are what makes this show possible, so please find me on my Patreon page and share your comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. You can find me on Patreon by searching for Aaron L. Miller. That's A-A-R-O-N. L is in Larry Miller. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.